Welcome, everybody. This is the Yield Coach Show, Season 1, Episode 8. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders, inspirational guests, ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. I am your host, Ian Brown, joined today by our guest, Chris Walker. Chris Walker is the partner in charge at local law firm Lippis Mathias in Jacksonville, Florida. He specializes in real estate law, title and escrow, structured finance, private equity, and all real estate transactional matters. Chris has transacted, brace yourself, in $3 billion worth of real estate. I said $3 billion in transactions. Chris is also the local chair of the Jacksonville Housing Authority Board. We'll talk about that more later. He has broad knowledge of affordable housing and workforce housing matters. And Chris is also an investor himself. Chris has personally invested in hundreds of units. He currently holds a couple hundred multifamily units across the United States, as well as some commercial real estate. And his holdings are concentrated in affordable and workforce housing. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, man. How have you been? Good, I hope. You know, I've been good. I think this is the time of year everybody's jealous of us Floridians. Um, you know, life is good. I know we both have some little kids to enjoy, so busy, 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 but certainly no complaints. Uh, but Chris, welcome on, man. If you could just, for the audience, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, happy to. Um, first, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This is awesome. Um, my background, um, I've been in Florida here for about uh, eight, going on nine years. Um, originally from Western Pennsylvania, born and raised, a small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, went to law school at uh, Penn State and met my wife. Uh, we then moved to Buffalo, New York for a few years, which is where I originally got connected with uh, Lippus Mathias, the law firm I'm at. Um, eventually got smart, decided to get out of some of that winter up there and uh, moved down here to Florida. So um, I've really enjoyed being down here, opened up the Lippus office down here and, and really got in, you know, at that point in time, about five, six years ago, really started getting into like that real estate world, that real estate investing. Um, I've been doing real estate, you know, law for over a decade, but really started to get into, you know, the investing and things like that myself uh, about seven, eight years ago. So, um, uh, live in St. Augustine, Florida, love it. Um, it's, you know, I live in paradise, um, wife, give a shout out to her. She is awesome. Takes care of everything for me. I wouldn't know how to run my life without her. Two kids, Gus and Gloria, two dogs, which is too, too many. I love them, but it's a lot of dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So um, just to back up a little bit, Buffalo, so you're a, you know, I think as everybody hears this interview later, you've got a tempo and a, dare I say madness, but you've got, you're, you're like a buzzsaw and, and you and I have transacted together. Uh, I have a lot of respect for you, but I feel like you bring some of that, some of that Northeast tempo down to us. Uh, slow moving folk in the south <laughs> yeah i mean it's it was i gotta tell you it was definitely you know growing up in the northeast right and then working in a law firm you know first real job um you know graduating law school going to work for a law firm in new york albeit buffalo but still new york very fast-paced environment gotta keep moving deadlines are you know always tomorrow morning not you know three days later and then you do come to the south i joke you, you go across the mason dixon line and it's just it's that half second hair slower, which for like the first three years I could not understand, man. I, I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't appreciate it. Um, 
but people joke. They're like, you know, you may live here, but you still have that um, that northern, um, you know, thousand miles an hour. My team here calls me the Tasmanian Devil. Um, so uh, I just spin around, create a whirlwind, and we'll see where it lands. So did you meet? Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you, you met your wife? In Buffalo, and that's and you guys migrated. Did you come straight to Jacksonville and St. Augustine, or did you land somewhere else? No, so we, we met in law school in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is a uh, Penn State School of Law. And, um, you know, she kind of put it on me. You know, she's from Buffalo, family's there. So um, ended up going to Buffalo for my first um, couple of years of practice. And then literally, I can remember like it was yesterday, we woke up, uh, you know, Thursday night, we go to bed, there was a sprinkle of snow. We wake up Friday morning. There's like six feet of snow. Everything's canceled, and I'll never forget. I like looked at my wife after you know she you know asked me air quotes uh, to go out and shovel out the driveway. And when I got in, I was having coffee. I'm like, I'm done. I'm out. We got like we got to go somewhere else. So I can remember like it was yesterday. We made the decision Friday we were leaving. Saturday we picked the spot. Sunday we told our parents. Monday I gave my notice at the firm saying I'm out. So like in the span of like four days. We were leaving Buffalo, New York, and coming to Florida. So kind of a, you know, you only need to do that like once in your life because, you know, after you're sort of planted, it's like good luck doing that again. Yeah. So um, I didn't realize that your wife is also an attorney. She is. Um, so she is a, um, she practiced law for, uh, for, well, for as long as I have, um, Barden, New York, Barden, Florida. Um, she does more employment, uh, general commercial matters. She's the outside uh or excuse me, she's general counsel for her family's businesses, um, which includes Orville's Appliances in Western New York. So she takes care of all their legal matters, um, you know, coordinates outside counsel as necessary, et cetera. So, and she's a full-time stay-at-home mom. So she's got like three jobs. She's got, you know, outside, or excuse me, uh, general counsel work. She's got raising the children's and she's got raising me. So she's got three full-time <laughs> jobs, um, which is not easy to do. Yeah, I feel for you. You know, my wife is also an attorney and she's a, uh... She's a litigator and man, I do deals for a living, you know, kind of at, kind of at my own pace, but she carries, I think she gets up to like over a hundred, you know, sometimes before she'd switched positions, she had like over a hundred felony cases at once. And I'm like, I can't win. I, I cannot win an argument with yeah. you. And, and I'll be totally candid on the show, man. She's, she's, she's faster thinking than me. She's witty. She's clever. You know, like I, I just don't stand a chance. So um, I, I feel for both of us. There's, there's no victories on us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, it's it's they always say that, it, you know, the um, um, you know, the wife makes the man or the woman makes the man. And I'm sure that holds true for you as much as it does me, man. I think it does. I, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever said it on the show, but I think if I never like kind of settled down, I was previously married, divorced, but I was never going to remarry again and um, and certainly not have any more children. Obviously, I've remarried. I've two more children i got a one a three and then of course chloe's 16 and she's out there driving and scaring me but um i don't think i, I don't think i would have had like the focus to just go ahead and you know go into my like investment journey think about a portfolio uh partly because kids and family force you to have a long view you, you're not like you know some young buck only thinking about like tomorrow or the next day you're like look i'm in this i'm raising a family i'm captaining this ship so yeah it kind of got me more focused on like you know, one, three, five, 10, 20 years. And, um, it's a, a tip of the hat to our wives for keeping us grounded. Um, so 10 years, real estate law, when you were, when you were in, I know obviously law school, a lot of the curriculum, you don't have any flexibility on. And then your second and third year, you get some flexibility in your courses. 
were you already concentrating in like real estate and finance or secured transactions or did you did you just switch or find your footing afterwards no i um when i was in law school i had no idea what i was going to do you know i took uh you know corporate classes criminal law um i served i did family law clinic and really just you know had no idea it wasn't until i got into my first job where i was actually representing lenders so banks syndicated finance transactions etc that i really started to get a taste for the real estate right because you see these guys on the lender side of the transaction and you're hearing you know your client is the bank and they're talking about these deals and you're hearing about all these deals and that's really what started to spark my interest it's like oh well that's interesting oh well, that's how the bank looks at that or we go over here and the bank's thinking oh well maybe that's not a great idea so that's what really sparked my interest in real estate i kind of fell into it um more than anything else and then really for the first two or three years, um, I did nothing but bank work, right? I didn't represent borrowers. I didn't put deals together. You know, I was the guy preparing the loan documents, the, the credit agreements, the, you know, whatever else was out there that needed done. And um, that's really what I started to get, you know, to get an eye into real estate, which I think is backwards in some ways, right? Like I got to look at it from the financing side first before I really got to look at it from the buying, owning, and operating side. So it was a little bit backwards, but it's a, definitely a unique perspective. So did that for about two years. And then when I came to Florida, um, you know, began working with some banks down here, but also got approached to start doing more owner-related work, right? And that's really where I started to, to really push in and do more of that owner side rep um, and, and really start to decide to invest myself. Interesting. You know, um, we somewhat share in that. I was not doing the legal banking side, but before law school, I was doing uh, appraisal work. And the appraisal work, obviously, this is before you had the AMC level between, well, commercially, you didn't have an AMC level between lender and appraiser. So we were directly engaged, you know, putting out uh, RFPs for lenders and doing, I was doing mostly hotels and apartments and a little bit of all commercial. But like you, I was saying, what is the credit side, the banking side? Like, what are their pain points? And um, I, I think we both probably have had an advantage in our in our investing careers to date by having that inside look, starting on the credit and banking side. We know we know what they want and don't want. I, I know, like, unless you have a huge global cash flow or a huge balance sheet, you know, I know the deals that are that are probably going to work and not work. So um, now you said you were doing bank work right out of uh, law school. Was that more of the foreclosure work i know there was a lot of that work to be done or was it was it different no so i graduated law school in 2010 or 11 um and so i was on the back end of kind of that um that downturn right so i was one of the few that when i came back to work you know they were slow people were just starting to hire again because they thought maybe the market was going to creep back up again from the real estate side so I, I got to see it kind of from the ground up rebuilding too, right? From a finance, cash flow, economic perspective, it's like, okay, you look back and I look back and see the kind of deals that we were doing 10 years ago from credit underwriting and documentation and structuring. And fast forward today, it's two completely different things, right? Because you were coming out of one cyclical cycle, the, the bottom of a cyclical cycle, and now you know, arguably we're somewhere in the upper tiers of another cycle. It's two completely different ways of, you know, looking at transactions, underwriting transactions, structuring, tra financing transactions. So it was really cool to kind of see that, you know, to kind of get both sides of that. So, And not to totally put you on the spot, and I have some thoughts on this. What are you saying differently from like when you got in 
to the industry, of course, on that you were in the banking side to today where you represent lenders, but you're also doing a lot of like your own investing and representing yeah. uh, capital and borrower groups. If you could give us any texture, kind of like on what, you know, compare and contrast a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, comparing and contrasting, right? The first thing that's obvious is interest rate environments, right? It's two completely, even though Fed funds rates back then were probably as low as they are now, we're seeing rates tick up again. And, you know, watching that rate environment and how it plays um, is kind of a, you know, it plays into every investment, right? What's your rate if you're borrowing? What's your rate? Um, things like that. Um, I'd say the other thing that I, I'm definitely seeing a big difference in is the level of sophistication in the structuring of deals and, you know, those waterfalls for investors, you know, who gets what after what returns are made. Um, they're getting more and more sophisticated, even more so than maybe they were 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's because you're seeing a lot more institutional money come into the real estate market. So, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, I would posit that there were probably more, there was probably... 50 to 80% less institutional money in the game um, on some of the things that we talk about investing, maybe multifamily. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of money. But I bet you it was significantly less. Fast forward to today, look, they got good cash flows, right? They are quasi-recession proof. Multifamily and residential housing was the strongest performing market um, even during the downturn from a rental perspective, real estate perspective. Um, they're a depreciating asset, right? Um, you can keep them on your books for a while. so. You bring that all together, and now you got all this inflow and outflow of international money. You've got you know the you, the worldwide political spectrum where people are trying to take their cash out of maybe a quasi destabilized country, bring it to the U.S. So there's a whole host of factors, right? But it, it's night and day, right? It's night and day from what was happening. You know, it's, it was night and day from what was happening four years ago, right? Um, let alone ten. So I think that's a great answer. And uh, just, just to jump in uh, on one point of clarification. When Chris talks about depreciating assets, he's talking about the accounting principle of depreciation. Um, yep. You know, to to the contrary, obviously, real estate generally is an appreciating asset. So, but you can offset most of your income through that depreciation write off. Just, I just wanted to point that clarification out. Um, one thing that I noticed, you know, I got to appraise in a couple of years, a year and a half or so of like the go go days. Um, now, what I did back then is you know, I was a young appraiser, so I mean I had supervision, and I wasn't I wasn't the one necessarily signing every report, but I did a lot of the field work, a lot of the interviews. I knew I knew what loans were getting funded. Yeah, there were a lot of there were a lot of ground up non recourse construction loans available, and I would go and like I said, I did a lot of hotels and some apartments. I'd get to the site, and let's say it's a forty million dollar. I, I remember going. It was like a $40 million Hampton Inn on the ocean. I think it was in Myrtle Beach or yeah. Virginia Beach. And I and I get there, and my property contact is already, you know, we've already made one big round of funding on the on the construction. He's already pulling up in his, like, brand-new curvy Mercedes, and the whole thing's non-recourse, 90% LTV. And they weren't going to, I mean, these deals weren't getting held anyways. They'd get them up. They'd get them out of the ground. They'd get them to CO, the Certificate of Occupancy, and they would sell that thing on like an architectural rendering. And as soon as it got CO'd, the deal would fund. And so nobody, there was, it was easy to take big risks. Well, easier because you got this non-recourse debt and you're going to sell the project before it's probably even really completed. And, um, and so it was, it was, re it was fairly reckless lending back then where fast forward now it's, there's a lot of money in the marketplace, but 
it's not as easy as it used to be. I mean, I feel like the underwriting has ratcheted up. And um, and I'd be curious if we do slide. I think we're good. I think we're good for the foreseeable future, at least in Florida. Uh, we just have so much population growth down here. But I think if we do have a slide where there's foreclosures again, especially on like income producing properties, I would be curious to see if the banks would take the properties back or be more open to workouts. Because one one fundamental thing that spanked a lot of lenders in the last cycle is they took back a lot of real estate and then ended up they're they're not designed to hold real estate as banks. They end up selling it at you know at deep, deep discounts, yeah. 20, 30, 40, 50 cents a dollar. I don't personally think broad scale I, I, even if we slid, I don't think the banks would would be like that. I think they'd be more inclined to work it or do workout. Yeah, I, I think that's true, except for maybe two circumstances, right? I, I don't think. Look, banks are not in the business of owning properties, right? They're in the business of lending money, collecting deposits, you know, and and returning dividends to their investors. It's hard for them to you know to take back a property and then hope they get out whole or make money on. So I, I I'm a firm believer, like I don't think banks want to own properties per se. I think if you do some bridge loans, depending on the terms, there's like those quote unquote loan to own programs, right? Where the, the sharp edges are so sharp that you'll never get out of it, which is a whole different conversation. But I don't think banks want to own the properties except maybe in two circumstances, right? One, where they make a loan, um, it's maybe it's a little aggressive. Even in this market, there's some banks that could, will still be a little bit aggressive, right? And at the end of the day, it doesn't work out and the borrower just, you know, is just, just a nightmare to deal with. What do I mean? Doesn't want to talk, doesn't want a solution, you know, screw you, I'm not doing anything, you, you know, just take it, right? Throw back the keys, right? That's always the, the non-recourse, I'm just going to throw the keys back. I think that's where banks get, you know, quite frankly, get, you know, upset. And they're like, you know, look, we loaned you the money. We all know deals can go south. We all know markets can change, right? But I think where banks get really upset, it's like, you know, you're just going to throw the keys back at us? Like, that's not a partnership. That's not that's not what we agreed to, right? So I think that's that's number one, you know, communicating with a bank, being willing to work with them if something does go wrong. And then two, the other thing is, is you, you mentioned the rolling up of the Mercedes and stuff like that, right? Whether people want to admit it or not, perception is reality, right? So if you roll up into a Mercedes on a project that's, you know, a million and a half under budget, okay, and the bank's there, and you're going, yeah, I can't finish it. And, you, you know, there's got to be a little bit of humility there, right? Like, you can't be saying to the bank, I have no money, I have no cash, and you're rolling up in a $150,000, you know, car. Like, you got to use some common sense there. And I'm not saying you deceive the bank. I'm just saying, you know, look, be prepared for the conversation, you know, when <laughs> the bank's like, so wait a minute, you can't fund this, but you're driving around a $100,000 car, you want a loan on another property, and you want me to help you build your house? Like, what the hell? Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, I just... I think those are the two points, right? That I, banks don't want to own properties. I, even when I represent banks in foreclosure matters, we're always trying to figure out a way to save the property, to save the project, restructure it somehow versus we're taking it, right? That really is becomes a last resort for them. So, I think that's a, I think that's a good observation. Um, and you and you are doing some deals that are higher level than probably a lot of the audience is is thinking of. You know, a lot of the audience might be thinking of like you know, small multifamily, you know, regional apartments, yeah. because I mean, you are, you're, you're operating on a, on a high I mean, with 3 billion transacted. You've seen, you've seen like the true nuances of this, like high level lending. The, um, I know like the debt funds and the non-recourse large bridge loans. What's interesting. And I doubt everybody knows this from what I understand about $10 million is kind of, I mean, 
if you go online and Google like debt funds or bridge loans for multifamily non-recourse, you'll see people that say three to five million. Like, but from what I'm hearing, the good money is really ten million and up, and and you're almost incentivized to borrow the big funds and do the big turns. Would you agree? Well, when you think when you think about it, right? Like, just think about it. You know, just from our perspective, just from a lawyer perspective, right? Or even from a borrower's perspective. Whether you borrow three million, five million, or ten million, you still have the same. You do the same diligence, the same documents, the same everything. So it's like, yeah, you know, for better or worse, they want to put out bigger checks, right? More money out, more money deployed, better yields on their funds, versus you know some smaller loans. But that said, you know, you know, just thinking through, I mean, I've seen guys get bridge loans for two hundred fifty, three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, right? And you just got to know where to look. Right, and you got to understand what you're getting into. Like those are the ones where, remember, I you know talked about the loan to own, the sharp edges, right? They're gonna lend you the money and hope that you screw up. Um, you just gotta understand what that means, right? If you stay in the box, you'll be just fine. If you try and push yourself outside the box, you know, buyer beware. So, and I think that again, just more for like the audience, you know, to understand the loans that Chris is talking about. These might be like a a bridge loan, think of a bridge as being like a fix and flip loan. You know, if you were to do an analogy on like a single family home. So you do this fix and flip loan into, let's say like a hundred unit or 200 unit apartment complex. This is where the lending actually can become non-recourse. It's where you might have better terms and by terms, I mean, lower rates where if, you know, somebody calls me and they're like, Hey, yield coach, let's, let's like, let's do a triplex. Well, we're probably, if we want to buy rehab and sell or buy rehab, uh, do the full burr, we're probably signing personal guarantees. Our rates are likely yeah. higher. Like I'm going to bridge in on a triplex, like at seven and a half percent private money, you know, whereas like Chris could probably find his clients, like, I don't know, 3% money non-recourse to do a $10 million bridge. So it's, yeah. it, it's contrary to what a lot of people would yeah, and and I think too on those smaller loans, like not small. I mean, look, you know, it's a lot of money. Don't don't make no mistake. But you know, on those smaller bridge loans, like you're talking about, you know, or those smaller loans. Let's say for a triplex, right? Those triplex loans actually get really interesting in the sense that okay, maybe you're only financing a triplex, but you know, are you financing the cash flow out of it? Are you financing the real estate out of it? So there's some cool things too that you can look at. You know, banks look at all that, right? There's now lenders out there that are focused less on the physical asset and more on cash flow. So maybe they're a little bit, you know, they're willing to go above an 80% loan to value um, because they like the cash flow piece. Um, so I think, you know, again, more money coming in, more creative ideas, more opportunities. So they exist. I'm seeing that come down, you know, to the triplex, the quads, the five, seven, 10 unit properties. I think it's going to take a little bit you know, more time to really see funds focus on this, but it's coming. It's, it's happening. They're, they're pushing into these markets. I see more advertising, whether it's like social media or email campaigns that I receive. It used to be like your one to four unit loan programs, whether it's, whether it's just like buying a quad for a rental or doing like a fix and flip loan, the same lenders were all in the one to four space and you had to have the global cash flow to do it. And well, now what I'm seeing is I'm getting a lot of ads for one to 20 units, which is interesting because four was always the cap because that, as we both know, that's a, a lending threshold too. But now I'm seeing one to 20 units. They're not looking I for, agree. they're not looking for personal income. They're looking for like debt coverage. And, um, and so to your point, they're taking kind of like the more sophisticated analytics of the larger apartment deals 
and like distilling it down to like, like you said, maybe a triplex and they're like, what's the debt coverage ratio? You know, what would be like, an, maybe not a full blown, like five year cash flow with IRR, but a little less concerned about the borrower, more concerned about the cash flow. And um, from what I see, you're still keeping the personal guarantees in there, but I think that's just the nature of, of smaller lending. Yeah, I agree. I, I, one of the first loans I did, uh, well, about five, six years ago was just, was one of these. I found somebody that um, I was, you know, real estate investors, right? Heavy on assets, our liquidity stinks, right? <laughs> There's never enough cash. Um, but I had a deal, it was a great cash flowing deal, but it was in an area that was still up and coming. So if you looked at it purely from an LTV perspective, loan to value, right? It wouldn't, it, it, it you know, it maxing out, I, let's say I could get, you know, $100,000 out of it. But if you looked at it from a cash flow perspective, I could get a buck sixty, buck seventy out of it. So finally found a um, small lender that you know looked at it with me and said, "Yeah, that makes sense. You know, yeah, the LTV is a little bit out of whack, but we'll make a credit exception because the cash flow is so strong." Um, so I think, especially for your investors and people listening to this, it's like this goes back to you. You got to know your numbers, right? You got to be able to tell the story to people that you're working with. To make sure they understand it in a clear fashion like yes i know that xyz doesn't fit in the box but here's why it's mitigated here's why it doesn't matter here's how i can protect against it so i think those are some you know some basic principles that even i forget sometimes i get so excited about a deal and the metrics i forget to slow down and explain the story to a third party that i want to work with because you know they you know they don't know they're coming into a deal fresh they don't have the eyes for the deal and just to follow up on that for some examples, like I'll look at deals sometimes where the cash flow is very good. So, I'll, you know, just to speak very plainly, high revenue, reasonable to low expenses, great net cash flow to then apply to whatever your debt service terms are. Sometimes there's just not a lot of real estate. So from like the physical plant analytics, lenders are going to get scared. Let me give you a, a super specific example. Maybe you got a property that doesn't have a lot of square footage, but it has tremendous revenue, like Airbnbs at the beach. You know, you might, you know, I'm looking at a property, Chris is aware of it, four units, the whole building is only 2,000 square feet. So you're like, okay, 2,000 square feet, do we have comps like at four or 500 bucks a foot? Because if, if you want an after renovation value of a million bucks, show me a, show me a quad that sold for 500 bucks a foot. And maybe at this moment, that sale doesn't exist, but there's a lot of investment people that would say, look, this thing is going to do 15,000 a month in revenue. You're going to operate it right. for 35, 45% expense ratio. You're going to have a debt coverage right. ratio like over two. So to Chris's point and kind of what I'm harping on is sometimes when you're used to underwriting a deal just on like the cash flow, it could look really good and then and it really could be good. But you go to like a lender, a real estate lender, and they're going to say, there's just not a lot of real estate here. Another example would be um, boat yards, like boat and RV yards. So that it's really just stabilized land with a fence. So from a banking perspective, you know, like I could go, I'm looking at one right now. I won't give you the address because I don't want you to snake it. But, you know, we're, we're looking, you know, let's say I'm looking at a five acre site with a partner and it's, it was, I'm not going to say too much, but it, it, it's going to be about, a million two to a million five to take the five acres from what it total like with per it should be about let's call it a million and a half project well this thing's gonna have like if you run a cash flow on it you can you can park like 
200 and say 250 items on it you know it's going to do like 30,000 a month in revenue operating expense you're going to run this thing for like 20 30 percent so it's going to scream off cash flow but when you go to a bank and you say look <laughs> i want to borrow you know uh, say a million two on five acres and like well what's on it well like some rocks a fence there's not a lot of real estate there so it's got an incredible cash flow so an investor could do, you know, like a three times debt coverage or better, but a bank might say, I'm not so sure. So. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, you know, just kind of just putting some wrapping thoughts on it, right? Like getting people to understand that cash flow is huge. And then also getting, you know, your lenders, if it's a bank, this is important to your lenders, getting them to understand like, hey, the cash is going to be sitting in your account, right? It's not like I'm going to like take this money and put it in another bank and you'll never know what's happening, right? It's going to sit there in your account. So I think that makes people feel better. But yeah, look, the intrinsic value of that cash flow, I think investors have come around to realize like, look, real estate, generally speaking, is a you know relatively safe long-term investment, right? You can't make more dirt, right? It's just, well, I guess you could, but you can't buy any more dirt than what's here today. It's just, it's, it's a diminishing asset. So, you know, even if it's just the dirt, it's certainly valuable, but people are realizing that that dirt now is just, it used to be like that was the value, right? The dirt was the dirt, that was the value. But now I think people are really starting to price in that cash flow and realize that that cash flow is on top of that value, that dirt, so. Yeah, yeah okay, and we, I think it's, we've tackled this issue really well. The, the last little comment I would make is, bear in mind, if you are like a top tier 1% operator and, and you just kick ass, you're like the best boatyard owner, you're the best Airbnb owner, the best hotelier. Don't expect to be able to go to a bank and get a credit decision that reflects you are top 1%. They have to assume yeah. by just quote unquote prudent medium operations. So I have met lenders that are like, look at my portfolio. It's banging at these numbers. I can't get loans based on what I'm doing. What's going on? You have to assume if you, if you die or leave the property or get foreclosed, the lender has to assume they can bolt on third party management and get the same projection. So that was just one last thing yeah. I picked up for my appraisal. Um, just to pivot a little bit, you've got a unique experience. Um, you sit as the chair of the Jacksonville Housing Authority, and I don't know if we'll have many guests that can speak to kind of what the Housing Authority is and just the, the overall topic of you know affordable housing and vouchers. Give us kind of like an overview of what that position is, what the Housing Authority does, are there housing authorities in every city? Just kind of talk us through some of that. Yeah, so housing authorities are, um, for the most part, um, uh, independent agencies in various cities across the United States. And um, housing authorities are used to public, or excuse me, to deploy federal housing and urban development dollars. So think project-based vouchers, right? So when I say project, what I mean is unlike a Section 8 voucher where it can go between property to property with the tenant, a project voucher stays at the project, so it just pays for the project. So you see more, you know, we have what's called public housing, which is sort of like project housing at the Housing Authority. And, you know, they help what are considered to be low income, extremely low income. And what that means is that's a HUD published definition, housing and urban development um, definition of what that means. And, and so, you know, at the Housing Authority, what we're focused on is, you know, public housing for those that are in what's called the extremely low income brackets and low income, um, very low income brackets, um, but also looking at affordable housing and something I think Housing Authority should be looking at is workforce housing, right? Because 
you know, look, as an investor, my goal is to push rents as far as I can to increase my, you know, gross, you know, rental income, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that the tenants that are living there can actually afford to pay that. So in some senses, you know, the housing authority is there to kind of figure out ways to help make it affordable while not necessarily, you know, crushing an investor's return, at least in my estimation. So housing authority, um, great, I, I do serve, I'm chair of the Jacksonville Housing Authority. There are housing authorities in most major cities across the United States. Um, like I mentioned, they're, they're really focused on that public housing aspect, but what it's done for me as an investor is really begin to understand, you know, hey, let, let's say I'm a big multifamily investor, right? I like multifamilies. I like anything from a single family home the whole way up to, you know, large unit complexes. I think they're a great value if you can find the right one. But what I really appreciate about kind of my background in affordable housing and now I see firsthand with JHA is that kind of product um, if real estate as a whole, if multifamily as a whole is quasi-insulated from a potential recession, because everyone's got to you know pay their rent to be able to live somewhere, right? If real estate multifamily is insulated to a degree, I think workforce housing and affordable housing are even more insulated, because when you think about it, you know, let's say that you're a you know a young white collar worker just got out of college, great job, you go get that sixteen hundred buck a month apartment, first real apartment, gorgeous. And then there's a downturn, and heaven forbid, your salary gets cut, or even worse, you get terminated, right? What are you going to do, right? You're not going to stay in that $1,600 a month unit. You're going to try and find something that's maybe $1,200 or $1,000 or $900. you got to make ends meet, right? So that's what I like about the affordable housing and the workforce housing is the sense that I don't necessarily think that, you know, an economic downturn or a change in um, macroeconomics will that adversely affect these two specific classes of housing within the larger rental housing market. So, and if anything, the housing authority, I think, and, and the data that we talk about and the, the situation we talk about, which I'm a big believer in affordable housing, you know, I think there's a need for private developers, private investors like us to, there's a social responsibility that I think we have, even though we're maximizing our returns, I think there's a social responsibility that we've got to to make sure we contribute back to some of that, um, to, to help those less fortunate, to make sure we can be a part of the solution, not part of the just the problem. But the housing authorities really shed some light on that. Just real quick, you got me on a soapbox now, um, Ian. Real quick, the, the Jacksonville Housing Authority has over um, 70,000 distinct applications on our affordable housing or public housing wait list. Assuming two to two to two and a half people per family, because those are applications, that's over 150,000 individuals in Duval County, Jacksonville, Florida, that are looking for some sort of affordable or public housing. That's a lot of people, right? It's a lot of people. And my point is, is that in my mind, that means you could add 60 to 70,000 new units in Jacksonville, and if they were priced appropriately and market appropriately, you could fill them up overnight. Um, those people exist. Those people need that housing. So. That's my soapbox on JHA. <laughs> no, thank you, Chris. Now, um, I'll say a couple of things and you just tell me if and where I, I go wrong. I feel like there is, like the trend is better funding for the housing authority. I guess I can only speak more locally. Better funding, more vouchers. When I say vouchers, like Section 8 and HUD, and these are, I'm going to paraphrase, these are not the project vouchers. These are the tenant-specific vouchers. And um, yep. correct, correct me if I'm wrong. There are thousands more of those um, coming into the marketplace, if you want to call it the marketplace, but to where tenants can go to. 
individual landlords offer a voucher and then get paid by the housing authority? That's right. So, you know, individual landlords can sign up to become part of a landlord program, and it works differently in different jurisdictions. So, you know, I'm talking Jacksonville and generally speaking. It might be different in Tampa or, you know, Charlotte or Atlanta or wherever, right? But generally speaking, you go into the housing authority, and if you, you can market to their tenants, you know, sign up to put your place on their site or as an available unit. If a tenant's interested, they'll come out and they'll do an inspection of the unit so that they can confirm that it's, you know, decent, safe, affordable. Um, you got to make sure the voucher amount works or there might be a copay component. So some vouchers aren't for the full rent, right? Some vouchers are only for 30% of the rent. The tenant's responsible for the balance. And then, um, you know, it's it, you, you take part in the landlord training programs to make sure you understand what you got to do. You keep in communication. So, yeah, those it's out there, right? Those are out there. And quite frankly, when you think about it, some people are like, ah, you know, Section 8 tenants, I don't know, hard to deal with. Maybe it's a little bit too much. Think about it from a, just an investment standpoint, right? It's like it's pretty hard to argue with a guaranteed check from the government <laughs> every month. <laughs> like mm -hmm. there's some maybe I'm not getting the highest rent, but hot darn, there is some serious value to knowing that Uncle Sam is cutting that check every month. So I totally agree. And just on, a, on one of my own investments, I had um, it was two particular. I had a 28 unit and an eight and they were a couple miles apart. They were independent properties, but. We got to where, from an asset management perspective, we wanted to have about half of our tenants. We, we would have done more if we could do it, but we wanted to have about half of our tenants because they were in lower income areas on these vouchers that Chris is talking about from the housing authority. Yeah. And I will say there were some, especially when typically like in the cold months around the holidays when you know tenants might be more inclined to miss rent, there were times when our rent roll, like you look at your your payment schedule, like on the fifth, sixth, seventh of the month, the only money we had collected so far at that point was the housing authority tenants. So yeah. you can, they can really insulate your cash flow. And and I'll just speak personally. I'm sure some landlords might have possibly some horror stories, but the housing authority tenants, I think I had, let's say, 14 to 18 housing authority tenants when I owned these properties. For the most part, they were they were great because and Chris might be able to speak to this. When I say great, if they if they break rules, damage property, they run the risk of losing the voucher. I mean, the voucher is quite it, it's like a it's like a housing food stamp to parallel. You don't want to lose it. it. Has a great monetary benefit. So they they tend to have better behavior than some of the market rate low income tenants. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and I'll say this, you know, look, there's. I don't care if it's low income workforce or, you know, you know, uh, class A assets, right? You're always going to have one or two bad apples that, you know, break, break things, you know, do dumb things, break the lease terms, loud, obnoxious. It's just, you know, just the world we live in, right? But I agree with you. I think a lot of these tenants um, that are on these vouchers, you know, they appreciate, they, they really appreciate that they have this because they can't make ends meet otherwise, and I think they do. To them, that look, that's it's the functional equivalent of dollars in their pocket, right? Because otherwise, they, you know, they can't afford this. So I think you're right. I think that I think they're they're very respectful, and you know, look, let's at the end of the day, you know, whether you have a voucher, or you don't have a voucher. I mean, this is why tenant screening in my, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of tenant screening. Believe it or not, I believe I I, I don't. Credit's important. I'm less worried about credit than I am worried about some of the other ancillary things. 
Because look, at the end of the day, you, you got to screen your tenants, right? You got to know who's living there. You got to know what their background is. You got to know what's going on, um, and you just got to be diligent about that process. And I think that's 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 the that's the big thing, right? Like, the the, the vouchers are great, the income's great, but you still have to do your diligence. So. And I don't, you might have a little trick up your sleeve, but my favorite screening procedure for um, multifamily rental management is the one that takes just a little more effort, and that would be calling the last couple landlords because. Landlords are not likely going to lie in anybody's favor, and if any, it, you know, and so you could. The easy, low-hanging fruit is to pay for the third-party service. You get a nice dashboard report. Here's their credit. Here's their employment. Blah blah blah, and that's all good. And you can do the criminal history search, but, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things, but calling the last landlord or two, uh, I've never, and I'll knock on wood. I've never had an issue with a tenant that I spoke to the trailing couple landlords. If they had good reports from the last couple landlords, that to me was like the best indication of how they were going to be for me, assuming they have a job where they can cover the rent by whatever multiple you require. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. And then, so where they can, you know, some don't want to give it or say, I don't have somebody. So I try to get it where we can. The other thing that I like to do is I say, listen, I, I want two or three references that aren't family. Um, and I want to be able to call your current employer just to verify income and verify stability. Some tenants, you know, when they, when they tell me, I don't feel comfortable with you calling your employer, boom, red flag. Um, I'm not saying that you discriminate. I'm not saying you do anything like that, but it, it, it makes me pause and go, okay, I need to ask more questions before I make a decision. Like, are you going to be out of work? Are you aware you're being laid off? Like what's going on? Right? So I think you're right. Taking that extra beat, um, to maybe ask that one more question. Uh, can save you a lot of headache, you know, six, eight months down the road. And I think the last thing I'll point out, especially with some of these more challenging um, properties, how many people are going to be in the unit? You know, is it is it grandma on the lease and then you've got like seven other people in there that aren't on the lease and it becomes an enforcement well, challenge? Oh, you can't talk to me that way. I'm not even your tenant. Well, you're here all the time and we have these rules about where you park, how long you can be here. Are you a guest? Are you family? And so I got a little bit better over the years. Now, I don't personally manage my own property anymore, but even just asset managing the managers, watching for how many people are on the lease and how many people are really living there. You can't discriminate legally against yeah. families, but you don't, you don't want to have somebody with like five unrelated teenage minors, you know, running around with that, with, that aren't on leases if, if you can avoid it legally. So like to, to, to one, a horror story, right? And this is just, this was terrible. And, 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 you know, you know, praise be that ultimately everybody turned out okay. But we had, um, not on one of mine, just one of my clients and they called me and just were freaking out. They had, um, a two bedroom, two bath, if memory serves, two bedroom, two bath. This was out West and, um, was rented to a couple, couple apparently had people like staying with them for long term, right? They had a second story deck and, they had like eight or ten people, nine, ten people on the deck, and the deck gave way, right? And, you know, fell down a story, horrible injuries, the whole nine yards. Um, deck had been maintained, was in good shape. They had evidence of all this, which goes to making sure you inspect your properties regularly to make sure you have records showing that you're doing your upkeep. But, um, you know, look, at the end of the day, when, when push came to shove, what they come to find out is, is like, this wasn't the first time they had been on this deck like this, right? They had like six people, seven people, living in a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment, you know, and that's no good, right? That's no good from a health perspective. That's no good from a rent perspective. That's no good for anything. So one of the things I tell 
I do myself, much like you, um, I don't personally manage um, my assets. You know, I engage people. But even when I was doing it, um, you know, what I did was I made a point every single quarter I went and looked and had an inspection of my assets, right? Because, you know, it's pretty hard. You know, look, if they get away with it for three months, you know, okay, you know, shame, shame, on, shame on you guys. But if I don't check it and I don't look and I'm not paying attention for a year, 18, 24 months, shame on me, right? You got to, you know, people love what they call the mailbox money, right? The check just shows up. It just shows up. But that doesn't mean you should stop looking and working your assets. It's a job, right? I mean, this is this is a job. Um, and, you know, when I first got started, I'm sure you were the same way, um, Ian, which is, you know, we had other jobs too, right? I, I think you said some of you, some of your listeners are, you know, kind of just looking to get into real estate and have other careers, right? I mean, make no mistake. I mean, this becomes a second job. You got to work, um, and it, it can be a grind at times. But you know, long term, I think it's worth it. I mean, it's a great asset class. Provides that mailbox money, and you know, is you know, honestly, it's fun. It is, and um, you know, it's been life changing for me. I don't know how I would have ever repositioned myself personally without uh, investment real estate. So. I don't know that there's another path. I'll say for the common man. And when I say common, like you could have kind of like a vanilla five out of 10 skill set and a little bit of street smarts and common sense can go a long ways. And in real estate, there's no special licensure to be an investor. There's no special license that says, I'm an investor, I'm a developer. Now many developers have other licenses, but you don't have to. So um, anyways, it, it's, there are very high income professions. You could be a surgeon. Um, you could be a lot of things. But as far as something, you could listen to podcasts, read books, study, partner up. I mean, I believe that real estate is the best path for most people to create wealth. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at some of the major corporations, right, major wealthy corporations, they have significant pieces, usually, of real estate. Or even if the corporations don't, miraculously, the major shareholders have major pieces of real estate. I mean, it's a major portion of, of the wealth in the United States. There's one other thing you mentioned um, that I thought I'd bring up. You said, you know, like, really want to get into this, you know, reading and podcasts, everything else. You mentioned partnerships and, and co-investments, right? Love that. When I first started getting into this, I did not go, you know, hey, I'm going to throw dollars at this and hope it works out, right? I went and found, you know, some mentors and some people that I thought did this, you know, a good way. And I said, hey, you know, look... Can I invest some dollars with you? Maybe it's a thousand. Maybe it's two thousand bucks. You know, I'll I'll do some sweat equity. I'll do what can I do to help? But I really want to learn, right? If you can find somebody like that, that is, you know, leaps and bounds. You, you can read and listen all you want, but you got to really get in there and and be part of something. And you know, look, God bless the folks that dive in head first with no experience. I mean, you know, can it be done? Yeah, it can. I've I've you know I've seen the success stories of people doing that. But really, you gotta you, you gotta be willing to, to humble yourself a little and go. Hey, I, maybe I need to co-invest along with somebody, or or maybe I just need to be a passive investor for on a small deal and just watch how it works. Right? I think that's a huge part of, of getting into the industry and, and quite frankly thriving in the industry. I mean, there's deals that I do where I am nothing more than a passive investor. Um, I just hand cash over to a sponsor and I sit back and watch. Why? Because I want to. I want to know. I want to understand. You know, what are they doing? Give me some insight. You know, that's a great way to expand your knowledge base. I'm going to wave the white mini legal pad after that, so Sammy, our producer, knows. Grab that nugget, chop it up, because that was that was hot <laughs> fire. That was hot fire, Mr. Walker. Um, I could not agree more. And I think for 
I just did a little bit of whiteboarding on this. I think for a lot of people, I think you and I were, let's say, I don't have to age us too bad. We're late 30s, early 40s, kind of bracketing 40. Um, you know, a lot of people, by this time in your lives, you might be married, have children, and you might be completely intimidated or just like, it's just not going to work. You are not going to be able to just jump out and become a full-time real estate investor. A really good way to learn is just like Chris said, co-invest or invest passively and we can get into more details, but if you are a limited partner in a larger deal, uh, you cannot lose more than what you put in. Don't don't put in like your last 10, 20, 30, 50,000, but if you put your money in and the deal doesn't go well, yes, you could lose your money. However, you are not personally signing um, guarantees on the larger loans. So if you find somebody that allows you to invest passively with them, that's experience. Hey, they should not be losing your money. They should be making you money. And really most importantly, your money's in there. You're going to pay attention. If you find a good operator that will share the P&L, the rent roll, like kind of the high-level asset management discussions and educate you along the way, here's our budget, here's our performer, here's why we're doing these types of turns and spending this amount of money and marketing in these locations and websites, you will learn so much faster uh, by getting by rolling up your sleeves, even as a passive investor or co-investor, like Chris said, and just jumping into a deal. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, well, Chris, I really, I, I feel like I could go forever on the housing authority discussion, but we, we tackled it pretty well. One thing, um, I never had a project based, I don't know if you still call them vouchers, but I never had the project level. I always had the individual tenant vouchers. And, uh, one thing I would point out for the audience and Chris did say it, but I just want to highlight it. If you hear this episode and you're ready to run into, uh, lower income neighborhoods, because let's be honest, the, the acquisition price is lower. The price per foot is lower. The rehab is often cheaper. Um, bear in mind those vouchers, they, they can be revoked. I mean, you could have bad behavior. They could lose their voucher. Also, this happened to me. I wouldn't call it a horror story, but it was a concern. I had, let's say, 15 vouchers going on. They can get reset during the voucher period. So let's say I sign with a tenant. They have a voucher for $750 with no contribution from the tenant. It's a, it's a full voucher. Let's say that tenant has a change in status or employment. I get a notice, usually via email or, or an old school letter, that the tenant is now responsible for 400, and the housing authority is going to pay me 350. I think that math works, and uh, I can't do anything about it. The challenge is, this may be a tenant that I now have to chase for 400 when I thought I was getting all 750 from the housing authority. That's just one frustration. Is a change even during your lease period. It's kind of out of your control if there's a change with the tenant status. Yeah, I agree. And the other the other thing I'll say about um, you know even Section Eight vouchers is those spot inspections, right? You know they can get down to you know and and how would you know, right? A tenant, you know, moving something around puts a hole in the wall, right? And just never calls you or doesn't fix it themselves. And the vouchers, the guy inspecting it comes through and says, well, guess what? You're you're going to lose your voucher payment this month because there's a hole in the wall. That goes back to making sure you inspect those units and take a look at them because you know, look, it's important. I mean, you gotta you gotta know what you own. So, and I will say that one of the benefits of focusing on housing authority tenants, we got to where we knew the only couple guys, and it, it was guys. I don't think there were any gals that were going to come and look at our units. So, by the relationship being strong with my property manager and the housing authority property inspector, we because you can lose weeks quickly you might lose a tenant and before you know it they're like well this window doesn't crank open where's the screen here um we don't think this air conditioning is working properly 
sometimes the concerns are valid. Sometimes, in my personal opinion, they're BS. So, but where you can where you can work through that is when my property manager had like 20 of these running with the inspector, and they and we did a good job, and we did everything we said we would do on their punch list. Before you know it, and maybe I shouldn't say this, they were like texting photos. They meaning the housing authority inspector and my property manager were like texting some photos back and forth. We were getting things done, and Chris was probably like, don't say that, Brown. But my point is, like, you get better as an operator, and you build these relationships. And if, if it were me advising the audience, thinking about doing Section 8 or HUD voucher tenants, I would probably not just do – you might do one just to learn, but you probably want to do them at scale and scope because the headache, it's not incremental. Once you've already absorbed the headache of having one or two, and by headache I mean working with the housing authority, the applications, the – the transfer deposit slips, the inspections, and blah, blah, blah. You might as well do like 50 of them or, or however many you have an appetite for because you're really going to, now you're going to benefit from all that labor that you front loaded. And here comes the direct deposits and you'll just, you'll just be a better operator. Yeah. So, um, well, Chris, the, um, another area of expertise you have, and, and um, I don't want to run too long, but could you touch a little bit on two topics? You can pick which one you go first. Syndications are on a lot of people's mind. Um, you know, the big non-recourse loans that we touched on maybe 40 minutes ago, you can't get them for these little onesie twosie deals. So a lot of people that might own a couple of rentals are thinking, I want to springboard into 100 unit plus deals with syndications and non-recourse money uh, with general partnerships and limited partnerships and waterfalls. Um, I know it's a very, it's a topic we could run like hours on, but it's kind of like the, common mistakes or pitfalls when you have a client let's say i called you and i'm like chris yield coach capital we're ready to syndicate what would be kind of something like your you know your cautionary tales or, or how would you vet me out a little bit the, the, the first thing i tell anybody is whatever you do um please don't sign any term sheets <laughs> until you talk with a lawyer and yeah i am a lawyer but i can tell you i've gotten myself into situations where you know, I, I use this phrase all the time, a lawyer that has himself as a client is a fool. Um, you know, and I was a fool, man. I, I did this one time where I'm like, I got this, I'll sign this term sheet, I understand it all, and get into the term sheet, and then you start looking through and it's like, oh crap, I didn't think of that, or what about this, or anything else. You know, the biggest thing when you try to start syndicating your deal, and like, I got someone, like I got someone that wants to do this with me, right? I'm gonna leap, exactly, I'm gonna springboard. It's like, just, Take the time, have somebody look at that term sheet from a different perspective, um, lawyer, accountant, business partner, don't just sign it, right? Um, because once you sign the term sheet, man, I mean, look, your, your syndicating partner, your limited partner, your, your quiet capital, your quiet cash, right? They're gonna hold you to it. I mean, their, their expectation is, is, hey, that was the deal we agreed to, so don't try and retrade me. I mean, these, you know, to your point, I mean, when you're the general partner in a limited partnership structure, right, meaning you're the guy that's going to run the deal but bringing less cash to the deal, presumably, um, they're going to expect you to live up to, their, to the deal that you agreed to. And guess what? If you don't, they'll just say no. Um, you know, they can go place that cash in six, ten different places. So first thing is you got to just have a term sheet and get it negotiated. The second thing I'll tell people is sign the term sheet. Once it's done, don't just say, okay, we're done with the term sheet, let's go to documents. It's like, no, pause for a second, sign the term sheet, get that signature you know, on ink and move forward from there. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I've gotten term sheets that aren't signed and they tell me it's final. And I'm like, are you sure it's final? Where's the signed version? Oh, we don't need one. 
we get 60% of the way through negotiating the, the syndication documents, we hit a snag and are like, well, that's not what the term sheet says. And the other group says, well, that wasn't the final term sheet. It's like, oh, come on, like, please. Um, you know, around the structuring of these things, they can be as simple as, you know, one agreement, you know, a, a joint venture operating agreement. They can be as complex as, you know, I've got one that I'm working on right now that is probably a combination of eight or ten different ventures that all roll up into a holding company. Um, so they, they can get as complicated as quickly as you want. Um, you know, you, you just, you know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Right? There's a lot that goes into this. Um, there is pursuit capital that you're going to have to spend. Right? You know, the lawyers don't work for free. The, you know, the, the, the diligence parties that you have to engage don't work for free. But I'll tell you, that, that, you know, for me, that was the leap. Like, that's where I have gotten to with my you know, investment career. That's where I want to be. You know? And it's kind of nice because once you find one or two of these bigger syndicators and you do a good job for them, it, it's rinse and repeat, kind of like what you said about the, the Section Eight, you know, and the and the you know bringing on the vouchers. Same kind of concept. You find one or two of these guys, set it up right the first time, spend the money up front to set it up right, and then it's rinse and repeat. They're just going to keep. If you do a good job, why would they move their money somewhere else, right? It's easier for them. It's easier for you. So that that was always the goal for me. Um, I am, you know, I won't say I'm there. There, you know, I'm not doing this full time for a living um, yet. Um, but certainly I'm, you know, doing these types of deals and that's, um, that's the dream, right? You know, I've got, you know, limited partners who, you know, are aware of what's going on. They give me their cash and we've built a rapport and a trust relationship where, you know, it's very nice. It's now when I find a deal, I can send out a, you know, relatively to a relatively small list of my syndicators and within a few days it's, it's funded. I mean, that's a great feeling to have. Um, but you got to take time to set it up. It takes, you know, time to set it up understand the documents and quite frankly build the trust in the relationship with them so you pretty much answered my both questions in that answer which was great because it was syndication and raising capital let's stick high level instead of moving around um, of course some people can pull friends and family money but let, let's leave that alone a more sophisticated syndication instead you can put out um, correspondence to a limited group and fund your opportunities um, obviously these people know you they're probably repeat and what better way to show them you're good at this by paying them back on a deal and have them fund the second, the third, the fourth. I mean, the track record is everything. Um, but let's say somebody doesn't have a track record working with outside money. Um, what would you say as far as uh, some tips on raising private capital? Let's just use your example. It's going to be a syndication um, and, and you're going to put out term sheets. They've never done a deal with you. Do you have any advice on kind of finding limited partners and anything you could say on that? Yeah, so I think a lot of um, the the first thing I would say is stay within your network to start, right? I've seen um, groups that and, and individuals that said, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a list of ten thousand limited partners and I'm going to blast everything out. Good luck. I mean, you know, you, you need a staff of twenty to to wade through that and process it and vet them and everything else. So, first thing I said is, you know, look, if you want to buy a house. Um, you know, and um, turn around and uh, flip it. You know, maybe you go to, and you, you can't do it all yourself. You go to your friends, brother, sister, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, friends from college, friends from elementary school, and say, hey, you know, I think I'm going to do, you know, this deal. You know, you know, if, if, if you want to invest with me, I can give you 10% on your money, 8% on your money, whatever. And start from there, right? Because normally what ends up happening is you start from there. 
Next thing you know, you get one or two of those people that are interested. They tell people, hey, this really worked out well for me. You know, I invested, making up a number, $10,000 in you know, 12 to 18 months later, I got 11 or $12,000 back. That's, that's a good, you know, good return on your money for a one to two year term. And it starts to build and it starts to snowball, right? You know, for the folks that, um, again, there's been people that, have, that I know that have been successful saying, I'm in and I'm just gonna, you know, blow it out there and hope that people respond. You know, they hit, some of them hit, some of them don't. Um, but I think having that base level, which, you know, you, you, you know well enough that if something does go wrong, it's not comfortable, but you're not uncomfortable calling them saying, hey, look, we got a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, the first deal I ever had that went south, and I, I joke, if you've never had a deal go south, it's like maybe you're not really a real estate investor. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you hope it never goes south. But the first one I had to go south, I actually had um, some friends in, and it's like, ah, crap, man. Like We ended up losing like 20% of our invested capital was not a good deal, but it was way better, um, one, being open and transparent with them, two, them being people that I knew, trusted, and they you know, had an inherent trust level in me to believe that, look, we've done everything we can. It's just, it was a bad investment, right? It didn't pan out the way we thought it was. Learning those lessons with people that you have a pre-existing relationship with and learning how to deal with those lessons you have a pre-existing relationship with is going to be a heck of a lot better than trying to walk into a room with a guy that's got 30, 50, 80, 100 million dollars and explain to him why you lost 10 of it. Um, mm -hmm. And having those experiences and being able to talk through it also gives you the ability to say, hey, listen, you know, that deal that went south, I now know that there were red flags along the way. When I did a debrief on this deal, I now know, hey, when these things start to happen, I need to get out in front of this as opposed to just, well, let's wait and see what happens, right? And you learn those things. Um, so there's a you know there, there's a whole host of why I believe starting with that that base level investor and kind of building your your network up is is important. That was a really good answer, Chris. The um, just to use like a parallel here. So like to use Chris's principles, let's say we wanted to apply it. Take your sphere of influence. Hey, you want to have a damn good deal because as Chris said, when you start, you're probably gonna be pulling money from like the tight core inner rings of your sphere of influence. These are yeah. people you probably have to see at like, you know, Thanksgiving yeah. or God forbid every day or at the workplace. You do not want to put them in a bad deal. You want to treat their money like it's superior to yours. And I think that's a good mindset. Obviously, Chris, I, I thank you for talking about a deal that didn't pan out. You're right. Everybody that's a long investor in real estate, you're going to have certain things that miss projection. You might have to do a capital call or not be able to return all the capital. And that's these are not good scenarios, but these are also reasons why. You want to have quality deals. Don't just, and I think Chris can probably agree, some people are money first, deal second. I tend to be a little more deal first. And what I mean by that is I've got to have an investable deal before I ever bother anybody. Now it's chicken or the egg. There's two schools of thought, but there's a risk in my opinion, and I've been disagreed with. If I go out and I, I lather up all these investors and, they, and there's, let's say there's $10 million ready to go, we can leverage it end up. 40, $50 million worth of real estate purchases. It is so tempting for the syndicator general partner to run out there and just start going on a buying spree with, without enough prudence because the tail is wagging the dog. The capital is, is like wagging the capital group. And so to Chris's point, a better approach, start a little smaller, use your core sphere of influence, good deal, 
and now you're building a track record. Don't go take straight, you know, big, mean, multi-million dollar strangers' money that are going to sue you when you fail. It's not a good way to start. Yeah, and just one more point on that. Um, on that, um, Ian is to say that um, when when I first started investing, um, I made it my principal core of one of my investings that I was going to take what I call a first loss position, right? So before anybody else lost money, I had to lose all of my investment first to make sure that I returned my partner's capital. Because to your point, I, and I think you said this earlier and I couldn't agree more, I treat my investor's money as if it's worth more, it is worth more than my money, right? Um, because they've placed their confidence in me, they've placed their faith in me, they have placed their expectations in me, and I've become you know, the, the purveyor um, and the guardian of that cash. And that, that just carries a higher threshold than, than my money. So you know, making sure you understand what that first loss position means and what it could do to you, and then making sure, quite honestly, to your point, that the temptation isn't there to say, oh, well, you know, I thought I'd do first loss, but how about we split it equally, right? You, you, you can't. You can't waffle on your principles here because that will get you sued. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I really hope people get all the way to the end of this show because there's so much quality content, Chris. I really do appreciate it. Um, in the sake of time, let's hit just a couple of personal things. What are what are some hobbies and interests of Chris Walker, the, the deal the deal machine, Chris? You know, I love. I joke. Um, I'm a deal junkie, right? I think you are too. Like, you know. If I'm having a lazy Saturday afternoon, I'll be on LoopNet or, or whatever, like just looking at deals or on the broker website. So I'm a deal junkie. I love uh, playing with software and things like that. Um, when I'm not doing that, love to try and golf. I'm terrible at it. Uh, it's absolutely horrible. It's never been good. And then, you know, you've got young kids too, right? You got to, you know, one of the things that drives my wife crazy, which I admit I'm horrible at and need to be better at, and I'm trying. She says I've gotten somewhat better. Is you got to have that work-life balance. I, I, I laugh. Like, I'm not sure that actually exists. I think it's like a wishful phenomenon that we all hope exists one day. But, you know, you got to make time to just turn it off, right? Because in real estate, I mean, you could make it so that it never ends. Um, and you just keep going and going and going. But, um, you know, you just got to take a minute take a step back, turn it off, and just kind of relax a little, which, trust me, mm -hmm. to your point earlier, being a, a Northeaster, you know, Pittsburgher, and then New Yorker, it's like, that That doesn't come naturally. No, it doesn't. Yeah, I don't see you, like, in a rocking chair, sipping a mint and julep, you know, <laughs> nice and slow. No, I might uh, be sipping a mint and julep, but I'm probably underwriting a deal. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, scrolling deals. Um, any any uh, resources? I, I do hope that people reach out to you if they're considering – yeah, getting into like uh, the affordable housing or syndicating a deal. Chris is a great resource. Um, he would be my first call on a on a formal syndication and get all your documents in order. But um, resources outside of you and your firm that you would say are worthwhile, like um, maybe, to be more specific, any like investment or business books that that had an influence on you. So, um, so some great books, um, you know, just, just kind of give you some ideas is, um, that I've read is the four hour work week. I don't necessarily agree with all the principles in there, but I think it, it gives some context that has nothing to do with, um, um, real estate per se. Um, one of my favorite resources is, um, you know, the multifamily, um, websites and things like that, where it's just, it's a click in the morning, right? You're having a cup of coffee, just click on something, read one article, right? 
Another place that I love, Novogratic, um, one of the preeminent real estate appraisal slash consulting firms in the U.S. Tons of free information out there. Highly encourage it. Um, and then, you know, one of the, 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 the things that I think is just, you know, is, is beholden to, to real estate investors is, like I said before, which is why I keep doing it, is you just got to put in the time. You got to grind, right? You, you, you got to be willing to underwrite that deal on a Saturday when you're tired because that could be the deal. Right, that could be the deal, um, and um, you know it, it does. It, it can take your toll on folks, but you got to be willing to put the time. For what it's worth, man, I use you know all sorts. Of, I've tried dozens of different investment models, anything from Excel to the online. You got to find what works for you. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, just accessing those resources, making sure you you know take the time to, to read it and digest it, and um, you know I wouldn't recommend trying to do it all in a day. It won't work. Uh, but uh, just being out there and touching on those things. Chris, you are really good at answering like three of my planned questions at once. So <laughs> I was going to say, what is the single biggest kind of coaching point you could impart on the audience? But it sounds like like doing that extra 20%, like that extra half day or day a week where it, that's the kind of the separating piece because a lot of people are willing to throw a little bit of time and stuff, see where it goes, but to really commit, and you said, the extra grind, um, but if, if you do have something in addition, but I, I totally agree that that can be the, the, the separating uh, feature. Yeah, I think that that is a separator. You know, I tell people all the time. Um, you know, my family and friends are like, you know, what what kind of what what would you say to somebody that really wants to get into this, right? And I tell people all the time, I'm like, there are people smarter than me, there are people better financed than me, there are people with more money, better connections than me but I will never let someone outwork me. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I truly believe that if you're gonna be a successful real estate investor, you gotta be able to work. Maybe you work, maybe somebody works as hard as you, but they'll never outwork you. Um, and that's key. And I think that sets precedent for your investors. They see that. I think it sets precedent for your banks. They see that. I think it sets precedent for, quite frankly, you know, your own personal life, you know, putting in that extra five, seven, 10, 20%. So, you know, that's one of my favorites is, is you, you can do many things, but you won't outwork me. <laughs> I love that. You know, even as I branded this platform, you know, the yield coach, obviously we have this athletic theme. Even those that didn't come up through athletics, you know, you had to at least get through PE in school. I mean, but you know, you know, like you've got to grind at times and kind of taking like the athletic analogies, you know, running those suicide sprints, hitting the weights at 6 a.m. or doing the two a days. Even if you didn't do sports, you kind of get it. And don't think just because the pursuit is entrepreneurial that it's going to be easy. I, I do love the expression, simple, not easy. And that's, that's really what this is. Is it complex? Over After a few years, you won't see it as complex. But it doesn't mean it becomes easy. So simple, not easy. <laughs> yep, love it. All right, Chris, um, where can people find you? We will have your like formal contact in the uh, in the show yeah, notes. Yeah. But if you want to you know, speak in like uh, the easiest easiest way people can reach out to you. Yeah, look, um, feel free to reach out to me. You know, um, my law firm's website is www.lippis.com. That's L-I-P-P-E-S.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Christopher Walker. Um, would be thrilled, um, uh, you know, if people want to reach out, talk to me, um, have a cup of coffee, you know, whether it's in person via Zoom. Um, you know, obviously friend of you as well, you know, anybody that knows you and friend of you, friend of mine, um, your subscribers, your, your folks that you're working with. So would be thrilled to help out. Like I said, this is, um, 
I love it. It's fun. It's what I like to do. Uh, so happy to happy to help people along the way. Wonderful. All right, and I do recommend you guys take Chris up on that offer. He's a he's a great resource. Um, be sure to, if you're listening, be sure to look on the Yield Coach Instagram for updates. So we're going to let some people fire in questions that we might answer in the future. Um, so please DM us or message us questions. You can email me. It's ian, I-A-N, at yield-coach.com. And um, this will be on YouTube, Spotify, Google, iTunes podcast. And this epi- when this episode launches, when you see it, please go ahead and subscribe to follow. Give us that five-star review. Help us grow. And we'll keep you posted on exciting content to come. But for that, we're going to call it a wrap. And this is Coach Brown telling you to lace up and leave it all on the field. You'll coach out. <laughs>